You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hi, David. Hi, Will. We are back for episode two. Episode two, Common Descent Podcast, the sequel. Yeah, uh, the sequel returns. <laughs> the sequel returns back to the miners. <laughs> uh, all right, well, welcome back, everybody. This is our second episode, and we're now going to start jumping into our actual subjects. Uh, yes. So th- this first one is going to be all about crocodiles, crocodilians, their relatives, what they are, kind of a, a, a breeze-by overview of them as a group. Uh, yeah, they're but really first, cool we're going to keep doing... I said they're a really cool group of animals. Oh, they really are. I thought you said they were cooler than mammals, and I was like, oh, that's a very definitive statement, but I agree. Well, duh. <laughs> cooler than mammals. So we're going to still stick to our typical episode structure of starting with some science news and then going into our discussion. Uh, and so we each have a couple articles again. Before we start, um, I do want to point out that a couple of special dates. Yes. This episode will be probably coming out, uh, if, we, if we release it on Sunday, it'll be coming out on February 12th, which is Charles Darwin's birthday, which is celebrated uh, around the U.S. and around the world as Darwin Day. Yeah. A celebration of science, uh, especially biology. So, mm-hmm. happy birthday, Chuck. Indeed. This is our unofficial Darwin Day shout-out episode. Yes, we, we planned it all along. Speaking of birthdays, we are currently recording this podcast on February 6th, which you'll be interested to know is Mewtwo's birthday. Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. It's it's right there in the journals in the Cinnabar Mansion. It is almost uh, as important. Uh. Almost. <laughs> Speaking of biological revolutions. <laughs> happy birthday, Mewtwo. Happy birthday, Darwin. I, I love my favorite thing about both the... But my favorite thing about Mewtwo's birthday is that, much like people's birthdays who you are not in regular contact with, Facebook will always remind you. <laughs> I will admit, 100% serious, I don't need reminding. Oh yeah, no, you don't. <laughs> I, For me, I, I was at work and I was like, oh yeah, happy birthday, Mewtwo. Uh, <laughs> All right, and that's the first tangent of the episode, ladies yeah, and gentlemen. Yeah, it's like, what, not five minutes in. That's uh, okay. So news. So I have a couple of news articles. Both of them are about new fossils specifically. I'll start with the, I'll I'll start with the tiny one and go up to the bigger one. So the first one is a very tiny fossil, but a very big deal fossil. So it is, uh, all the article tiles are calling it a bag-like sea creature or so on and so forth. (laughs) But, um, it is a very tiny invertebrate that was found that they believe to be the earliest ancestor of deuterostomes, which is a grouping of animals that includes all chordates and echinoderms, and then also another group that's commonly called acorn worms. And chordates include us and everything else with a backbone and with a spinal cord. And and echinoderms are going to be sea stars and all of their weird relatives. And that's a lot of life on Earth. Like, yeah, that's a huge chunk. Exactly. And so they, so far, if uh, from everything they're seeing, this is the earliest ancestor of that group. And so all the 
articles, titles are calling it the earliest human ancestor, which is technically correct, but also <laughs> a lot of other stuff, too. Yeah, it's a little bit, uh, we call that anthropocentric. Yes. Putting humans at the center of things. It's typically going to be more exciting for more people if there are people involved in it. Yes. It's 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 marketing. <laughs> it's um, a cool animal, though. Yes. So this guy was around uh, 540 million years ago, which puts it back before a lot of the earliest animal. Like, this is yep. an old, old animal. It would have been like a millimeter long, and it was probably just living in the sand, gulping down little bits of food. They call it bag-like because it had a really big mouth that went into a stomach and onto nothing else. Yeah. Dead end. Digestive tract. Yes. A.K.A. it did not have a butthole. No butt. Uh, nothing. And so, that now that's not... <laughs> <laughs> we we are uh we are strict on keeping our scientific jargon to the highest degree of <laughs> reprimand. Um, so that is actually not that uncommon when it comes to animals. Uh sea anemones and corals also have this. Uh the the Nidarias also just have a two a two-way digestive tract where it has to go in and come back out. Yep. The same opening. I got a kick out of this article particularly because we talk about that at the aquarium all the time because we have a touch tank with anemones. People touch them, and one of the best ways to get little kids interested or get a laugh is the fact that the hole in the middle, people always ask, is that the mouth? Yes, it is, and also <laughs> it's the only hole they have. And sometimes they'll have their side, oh, and then other people will click right away. But either way, you eventually get to the point of that's also its bottom. Yep. Yes, it does poop out of there, and then you can make the lovely bad joke of, which would make them the original potty mouths. Oh. <laughs> people. So this new creature is uh, one of the actual original potty mouths. Yeah, no, like, quite literally. And I loved in the article how long it took them, and how meticulously they talked around saying that phrase exactly of <laughs> you mean the writers of the the popular yes. news article yes exactly of yeah. saying that yes it does poop out of its mouth but it's an excellent find it's a chinese fossil the people who studied this and uh, or led the study it's a number of uh authors to the paper but uh Jian han was the the lead author on it and so lot, lots of cool fossils coming out of china and my next one yeah. will also actually be from china but before that, it's your turn. Uh, I'll take one. Mine, uh, actually, uh, part of this next one is a uh, Chinese fossil. Woo. Speaking of super tiny things, so uh, th 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 this next is actually, I'm cheating today. I have my two news stories that I brought in today are actually two stories each. And the first one is two news stories about fossilized proteins. So some background on this, you know, proteins are the molecules that make up our all, all of our tissues. And common knowledge is that when an animal dies, its soft tissues, skin, hair, organs, things like that, dis dissolve, decompose, disappear. And so when we're, we have fossils, for the most part, we are left with bone. But very recently, uh, about 10 years ago or so, a woman a paleontologist named Mary Schweitzer claimed to have found microscopic protein fragments in dinosaur bones. And this is a big deal. Uh, no one had ever really, as far as I know, no one had ever actually gone out and proven that proteins can't last for that long. 
But it was generally assumed, like, oh, yeah, well, soft tissue disappears. We're not going to find the proteins left over. Yeah, just mostly as we weren't finding it. Yes, we never found it. We didn't know how to look for it. As soon as this came out, all sorts of, you know, the way science works is you make an extraordinary claim, and literally everybody else in the field says, no, we're going to try to disprove you. And so over the last several years, we, we've been seeing a lot of work basically supporting this and trying to, to figure out how proteins are preserved and when they are and if which ones are. So this new study, Mary Schweitzer again, along with a, a group of other researchers led by Elena Schroeder uh, at North Carolina State University, basically redid one of their original experiments on a, a thigh bone, a femur, from a dinosaur named Brachylophosaurus from Montana about 80 million years ago, you know, putting it toward the end of the age of dinosaurs, but, you know, before T-Rex showed up. And they redid the, stu- you know, the, they redid the methods, now with updated technology, updated knowledge of proteins. And what is really interesting is that not only did they find proteins again, fragments at least, but some of the fragment proteins are a match for proteins they found the first time. Nice. Which is really great because that's a replicated study. Mm-hmm. One of the arguments when people are saying are questioning these findings is you say, oh well, if it's if you're not actually finding original dinosaur proteins, you're probably finding contaminants. Mm-hmm. You know. Pro- bits of protein that have gotten in from yourself or from the lab or, you know, a bug or something. But if you, not only did you find proteins both times, but you found some of the exact same protein fragments, that's a really good indication that what you're finding here is a legitimate discovery of super ancient preserved proteins. Which is really awesome. Really cool. We talked about this a bit last time that sort of we're Entering this age of molecular paleontology. Yes, which is uh, very awesome and, and at times intimidating with how much it's uncovering how quickly. Yes, it's it's led to all sorts of cool debates. But what's really cool, the second part of my, my one news story that is actually two news stories, is that also very recently, a study has come out from a group of people in China, a group of paleontologists in China, that are claiming to have found protein fragments in a rib of a dinosaur from China named Lufungosaurus. But what's interesting about this one is that while Brachylophosaurus is 80 million years old, which is already crazy old to be finding proteins, this new one is 195 million, putting it just about at the be- way back toward the beginning of, of dinosaurs in general. Mm-hmm. This one has understandably been met with lots of skepticism. Yeah. Some paleontologists are happy with it. Uh, notably, Mary Schweitzer herself has expressed heavy criticism, uh, mostly because, you know, it's still a new field of investigation and we're still learning the best methods for detecting these things. You detect the most microscope analysis, but also spectroscopic analysis, which gets a chemical reading. Mm-hmm. Of the proteins. So some people like Schweitzer are saying, well, you have possible evidence of proteins, but we'd like to see more different methods, more uh, sort of strict techniques used. So we have proteins pretty much, you know, we don't know how they're being preserved yet. That's still under investigation. 
Mm-hmm. But it's starting to look like we can find preserved dinosaur protein fragments going back 65, 80 million years. And now there's at least the suggestion of them going back way, way farther than that. I really like this because not only are finding dinosaur proteins awesome in and of themselves, because that can start really, that we can start learning a lot about their, you know, molecular biology, not just you know, functional anatomy of how they moved. Yes. You know, we, we can start learning how their body and tissues function. But it's also a really cool example of how science is actually supposed to be done. Yeah. Repeat studies is one thing that gets overlooked just about more than anything else when it comes to the scientific method. Oh, yeah. It's not exciting. Yeah, it's not exciting. You know, people all the time, you know, because I've heard, you know, phrasing before of, you know, they did a study and they got the same answer. And it's like... Well, then what was the point? Because they got it twice. That's twice as much, you know, uh, support for it than they had before. Yeah, that's how you know you're not making a mistake. Exactly. And, and it's one of those things, everyone does it every day when you, you know, put something into your calculator and you get a weird answer and you do it all again. Yep. And you get the, that's a repeat study. That's a replication. Just on a very small scale. <laughs> exactly. And that's a big part of, and that's why the important thing of any experiment done is that it has to be repeatable. Yes. Yeah. That's one of the core requirements for the scientific method is that it must be repeatable. Otherwise it's just a very interesting observation. But if I can't ever test it myself, then it's nothing more than that. So it's good to see science being done right. Yeah. No, no, those are cool ones. All right. Next one up. Uh, Okay. So another Chinese fossil. Uh, this one's a good bit bigger and significantly large for what it is. This is a large fossil otter discovered in China that's about six, uh, 6.24 million years old. And uh, there's lots of things calling it the wolf otter or <laughs> something to that extent. Because this was about a 100-pound otter. That's a big otter. It's a big otter. And so it was found from a fairly complete skull. That was actually crushed, and we talked about it last time, how fossils typically get damaged. This one, they were saying, was too delicate to rebuild, so they actually CT scanned it and made a digital reconstruction. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Wow. A few more years of this uh, technology, we won't even have to dig anymore. <laughs> then we'll be out of a job. Don't uh, <laughs> oh, All right. So, they got the really nice skull, nice teeth. And uh, a bit of postcranial, so some of the bones from the the rest of the skeleton. And with that, they were able to estimate the weight of about 100 pounds, which would put this about the size of a wolf, thus the the nickname. Uh, Its actual name is uh, Siamogal Melalutra, which is badger otter. Yeah. In the last part of the name is what that means, because it had a lot of skull similarities to a badger. Interesting. So it was definitely living, living quite differently from yes. modern otters. Very robust, very heavy sculled, very uh, strong bite, obviously. It also had uh, what we call bunodont teeth, which is rounded cusp, uh, blunt teeth, basically. It's it's right. the kind of molars we have. Bumpy, little, like little, yeah. a, few, a few little bumps. Exactly. So it's it's the kinds of things you see in pigs and us, and also um, many bears have them as well. And these are 
often for generalized diets, but they're actually seen fairly regularly in other otter species for crushing hard-shelled things, clams, shellfish, cool. so on and so forth. So this was a diet similar to what we've seen in other otters. The cool part that it brought up in the, the study was that this raised the question, because evidently otter fossils are not that common, which I did not know until hmm. reading up about it, that now that they've seen that it's more common, is this an ancestral trait or a convergent trait? Okay, so is this, those those kinds of teeth, is that something that the original, that the earliest otters mm-hmm. had, and the reason it's so widespread is because it's been inherited? Exactly. Or is it something that has evolved separately in a bunch of different groups of otters and different Because species? they're all eating shellfish and need tough teeth. Yeah, interesting. Well, it's interesting because you see shell shell-crushing teeth show up in a lot of different animals. Uh, there are lizards that have... There's a there's a really cool lizard, Dracaena, I believe. I don't remember the common name, and I'm annoyed at myself because I don't remember it, but it has these big, round teeth in the back for crushing uh, snails. Uh, the caiman lizard. The caiman lizard, yes. That, yes. Yeah, figures you would know. I, yeah, because it's, it's got the <laughs> best name. <laughs> there are also alligator lizards. Yes. And there's a crocodile I, lizard, actually. I, it, it's uh, all wannabes. It's something to aspire to. <laughs> no, the caiman lizard's always been one of my favorites because that—that's really unique teeth. Yeah. But yeah, so it's they—it it raised that question, which is cool because at one point in the article, uh, they mentioned that one of the pre or either one of the previous thoughts or what current studies show is that this type of dentition showed up, I think, four separate times. If it is convergent, it would have been popped up independently four times throughout the otter family tree and timeline. Huh. That's cool. Which is always an uh, a interesting and difficult question. It's actually going to come up later in, in the crocodile discussion. Yes. Convergent versus a- ancestral relation. Yeah, it can be really hard to tell with fossils. Absolutely. All right. Uh, cool. That is, that is it for my news. All right. One more for me. We're actually working our way down the timeline. Uh, we yeah, yeah, there we go. Way at the beginning of animal history, hit the Mesozoic with dinosaurs. Uh, that otter was practically yesterday at six million yeah. years old, and now my next one is quite almost literally yesterday geologically. Yes, it'd be like this morning. Yes. So we, um, the last news article I talked about a new debate, which is protein, you know, remnants of, of microscopic soft tissue. This next news bit of news is an old debate. So it, it re- revolves around the Australian megafauna at the end of the Ice Age. So about, you know, between 100,000 years ago and about 10,000 years ago, and especially toward the later part of that period, this was the end of the Ice Age. And all around the world uh, experienced an event called the megafaunal extinction, which basically what happened was a lot of big things died. Mammoths, mastodons, woolly rhinos, giant ground sloths, saber-toothed cats, all sorts of big, impressive species disappeared. And the big debate for a long time has been, why did they go extinct? And there is evidence to support both that it could have been a climate effect, the world was getting significantly warmer at that time, moving into the current period, 
and although not quite as warm as we're making it, but warmer. <laughs> and then the, there's also evidence that it was related to the fact that a new deadly predator had started spreading around the world by the name of Homo sapiens. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, yeah, the, the villain at the end of the, the Ice Age story. <laughs> and it depends on where you look in the world and it depends on what evidence you're looking at. Some places it's clear, like islands. Many islands, if you look at the fossil record, life is doing just fine until humans show up and then everything yeah. goes to heck. That's what happened to the dodo right, on Mauritius. Yes. People showed up, lots of animals, and they disappeared. Mm-hmm. So turning to Australia, it's really cool because two new studies just came out about the causes, the correlations of the megafaunal extinction that found opposite results. So the first one is a study that was done in southwestern Australia, and they looked at, uh, basically they were looking at sediment cores including pollen and uh, spores from fungus, specifically fungus that was living in and growing on the dung of big herbivores. And what they found was, as time went on, moving towards the last few ten, you know, a few 10,000 years, 45,000 years ago or so, the spores indicate that the megafauna, the big herbivores, were disappearing. Fewer spores because there's fewer dung, big animals are going away, which is consistent with what we see in the fossils of the big animals. Mm-hmm. But the pollen didn't show major changes. And if the climate was shifting and that was affecting the animals in a big way then you would expect to see the plants reacting, and that's what would cause the animal decline. You know, as, you know, warming climate doesn't give animals heat strokes. It changes the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So it didn't find a big change in plants, which they're saying is evidence against the change in climate being a big effect on the extinction. Yes. But about a week later... Another study came out from another part of Australia, I, I want to say the southeast, uh, led by uh, Larissa DeSantis down in Tennessee. The first study was, oh, I don't have the names here, I apologize, but we'll put it on the blog post. Um, Larissa DeSantis's study looked at the, the fossils themselves of the big herbivores in older, way before the extinction, and younger while the extinction was happening or maybe a little bit after it. And what she was looking at was the isotopes in the teeth. So these are the chemicals that are built into the teeth as they grow. And these chemicals are picked up from the environment. So we're talking about things like oxygen and carbon. Yes. Right? Elemental constituents of the environment. You pick up oxygen typically from sources like water. Mm-hmm. And so exactly the makeup of your oxygen molecules, your oxygen atoms, can inform us about environmental conditions. And you pick up carbon from the food you eat. So the carbon signature can tell you about what kind of plants, different kind of plants have different ratios of carbon isotopes. Yeah. And what she found was moving from the older fossils to the younger fossils, the oxygen record in the animal's teeth indicated that the climate was getting more dry and arid, which is obviously consistent with a shifting climate, and also that the carbon isotopes indicated that their diets were changing. They were moving towards eating different kinds of plants, 
which was also seen in the markings on their teeth. So this is evidence that not only was the local climate shifting, but it was in fact having a, a noticeable effect on the animals mm-hmm. living there at the time, which is a really cool demonstration of it's very common for the news to get excited about scientific controversy and label things as debates. Yes. Most of the time they're not. In this case, this is a real debate. And the reason there's a debate is because there are actually conflicting signals yeah. in the fossil record, depending on what source of information you're looking at. These were two different regions in Australia. So there may have been slightly different effects in different regions. Mm-hmm. It's it's a, a debate with a long history and it's apparently not ending anytime soon. Yeah, it's it's super interesting because as you said, it is a legitimate debate because it's got conflicting info. They have good evidence for both arguments. Yeah, they seem to. Yeah, and so and it's been the case I mean, we both learned about it in school. A couple of our professors have even, you know, worked in studies having to do with it and it's it's one of those things where it is Far and you mentioned it at the beginning. This has been going on for a while, and they still can't get the answer because it's the evidence is either vague enough, or disagrees with, or seems to disagree with other evidence that one single answer still can't be drawn. Yeah, that's either somewhere down the middle or on one side, and it's vexing to us. Yeah, I, I'm always interested in those moments because. To me, it says that there, there's something interesting going on there. Yes. When we finally get the answer, it's going to be a really cool one. Usually, whenever there's something like that where we have a bunch of information and we're still not sure what the answer is, it means something weird and fascinating is probably happening. Mm-hmm. Whether it's in the actual record or whether it's something we're doing Yes. with our information, it, there's something cool to be learned there. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. That's so that, that concludes our news session. All right. Now back to you, Chuck. Back to you. Now over to the topic discussion desk for some crocodilians. Crocs. Now, those are the ones with the big teeth, aren't they? Um. <laughs> <laughs> those are some big teeth there, Phil. <laughs> Hopefully you don't get too close. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh man. Whew. That laugh is probably too loud for the pot. I'm gonna have to reduce that. That was a good you really got me with that one. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Alright. So all kidding aside, no. Uh so we are now gonna get to move into our actual topic, which is crocodilians for this episode. Uh cool. so these are my favorite animals. And were my uh, focus of study during school. Yes. Will has good taste. He has selected the second best animals in the world to be his favorites. No, no, I'm sorry. You're confused. That's next. That's next is the second best. Uh-huh. We're I getting there. I don't think so. <laughs> you decide. <laughs> we'll put up a poll at the end. <laughs> we actually... We'll definitely do that. All right. Yes. All right. Now Good ideas. Said, we can do that on Twitter. We'll make Absolutely. a Twitter poll. All right. I'm counting on all you guys. Come on. Uh, <laughs> Team crocodilians. <laughs> so first off, we're using the term crocodilians, uh, which is obviously very similar to crocodiles, but actually encompasses a bigger group. So 
crocodilians today include crocodiles, alligators, caimans, and the one gharial. And that's basically all the water-dwelling big reptiles with a long snout and lots of teeth that swim around and attack things at the shore. It's They all have a similar body design to them. Right. And they're a small percentage of what was, and we'll get into that kind of what they looked like in the past in a bit. The modern species, the modern crocs that we have, are pretty cool. They they There's only about 23 to 24, maybe 5 species. Mm-hmm. And the reason that's vague is getting into when we were talking about the molecular stuff coming in. Yeah. Genetic studies now that they are a much more common thing are starting to divide species or identify and isolate groups that are actually genetically different. And so certain groups of crocodiles or individual crocodiles are getting split off or redefined or renamed and so on and so forth. So the right. the species number fluctuates, especially since the studies are still new. So some people are like, yeah, no, there's 25. Another person's like, no, there's 23. <laughs> <laughs> As we're, we're trying to find the best way to represent their diversity by figuring out the a, a more accurate number of divisions. Absolutely. So that they're they're it's kind of in flux, which is not unusual. The the crocs have actually had a a long history of unsure family history, just because, like we mentioned earlier, convergent evolution and ancestral relation are hard to differentiate. Yeah. And most crocodiles kind of look the same. Yeah, it's a very they're all very similar. Yeah, what we would call conservative. Incidentally, we should give out some pointers. As to what the difference is. That is a good point. Between a crocodile and an alligator. And a caiman and a gharial. Yeah, so for all the groups, crocodiles are basically what you're typically thinking of. Because they're the more numerous. There's about 16 species of crocodile. Mm-hmm. And they're on every single continent except Europe and Antarctica. So most times you're around the world, you're looking at a croc. If something's in the water about to bite you. Um... <laughs> <laughs> And the big question usually is, how do you tell an alligator from a crocodile? Because I live here in Florida. Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, it's people, it's actually relevant <laughs> to daily life. Because you want to know which one's in your backyard. Uh, it's an important question to ask. Uh, alligators don't have that little fringe on the hind leg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we, we should have a, a bibliography of what movies we referenced. Movie we should we should see if people if you if you got that reference, post it on Twitter or yes, Facebook and do. tell us that you got it. <laughs> Copy down the quote and cite the movie. <laughs> so with alligators and crocodiles, and those are significant because those are one of the few that actually overlap. Uh, here in Florida is the only place where you'll find alligator and crocodile sharing water together. Right. The alligator and this goes for the caimans for the most part as well, who are close relatives with the alligators, all have typically rounder, stouter snouts, mm-hmm. usually wider snouts that are typically designed for tougher food or just a general can opener for whatever they come across, not anything yeah. specialized. And the big difference is that their teeth all have an overbite. They all stick out on top with the top teeth sticking down over the bottom teeth being enclosed in the mouth 
And so whenever they close their mouth, you'll see the top teeth sticking around the lips. No bottom teeth. Unless it's one that has a weird thing with a snaggle tooth. Yeah. Crocs tend to have the more V-shaped pizza slice-shaped snout. Mm-hmm. More narrow, a little bit longer. You definitely can still get a couple of Crocs who have different shaped snouts, so it's not always 100%. But the thing that will always tell you is the teeth. Crocodile teeth interlock, so when their mouths are closed, they fit together kind of like a zipper. And you yeah. see top and bottom teeth all together, and the one of the uh, pairs of the f- forward bottom teeth always stick out of the mouth. Yes, which is one of the reasons that their snouts are constricted. Yes. Is it gives room for those little... The, the, well, the big teeth that stick up on either side. Yeah, so they, they tend to look toothier. You'll, you, you'll see more teeth when looking at a crocodile. Uh, yeah. And there are other differences, but most of those get into the things on the inside, like the bones, that it's hard to ID them from the outside. Yeah. But yeah, so that's those two groups. Caimans are relatives of the alligator and are all relegated to South America. There's six species of caiman, and they range in size from relatively small, six or seven feet to uh, about 15, 16 feet long, about the size of our, just a, or a little bit bigger even. The black caiman gets about the size of the American alligator. Wow. And alligators are only in America and China. Chinese alligator being way smaller. Yeah, they're, uh, they used to be much more diverse. And the fact that they're on opposite side of the world also suggests a prehistoric large range. Yep. The fossil site we worked at, the gray fossil site, also had an alligator up in Tennessee, where they used to be. Yeah. The gharial is the one that is the oddball out of everyone else, and is the only one of its species remaining today, except for some studies, which we'll get into in a little bit on where it might be placed differently. They live in India, since it is the Indian gharial, and it is the one with the super skinny snout, very needle-like teeth, kind of has buggy eyes that stick out. Its its face looks noticeably different than most other crocodilians. It's also one of the largest. They get up to 17 feet hmm. and most aquatic, which is cool. They Interesting. And it's one of those things where it's hard to be definitive as if they're just lazy or actually can't, but many studies have shown that once a gharial gets to be an adult, they can't actually stand up anymore. They can belly crawl, huh. and so they, they, they're made for the water, not for walking. So the gharials, it sounds like, are the weird ones. Yes, and that that continues into one debate that, much like the megafaunal extinction, has raged on in crocodilian studies for quite a while. Yeah. So there's another crocodilian called the false gharial, which is mm-hmm. typically grouped with the crocodiles. So classically, we look at morphology. Yes. Bones and fossils, and that tends to tell us when we put all that together statistically, that this species is a close relative of, pro- of of true crocodiles. Exactly, yes. And so that's most family trees you would look at for crocodilians would have crocodiles with the false gharial next to them in, mm-hmm. in the group with them, but off on its own because it is a an oddball. And yep. then the true gharial, the Indian gharial, way off by itself. Okay, so a, a more distant relative compared to the rest of the crocodilians. The false gharial has its name because it has a long skinny snout much like the other gharial, but a more crocodile face. Okay. Thus why the bones tell us it's grouped with crocodiles and it, you know, even just at a glance very much looks like it is and a lot of things about 
the structure of the skull are more similar to crocodiles. Hmm. The debate comes in with, once again, the new genetic science. Genetics, when brought into the study, all su- just about all agree and suggest that instead that the false gharial, known as tamistema, Mm-hmm. should be brought out of crocodiles into a separate group grouped with the Indian gharial. And both are brought closer, the Indian gharial is brought closer to true crocodiles. Interesting. So it, so the genetic study would say that you have the croc family lineage, the gator and caiman family lineage, and then a separate group that is both of the gharial and the false gharial. Yes. So that they were close to each other as opposed to one of them being closer to Crocs. Yes, exactly. And it mm-hmm. also brings the gharial much closer to Crocs than it typically is considered. And the reason this is a raging debate is that the stu- the osteological studies, the bone studies, studying the fossils and the skeletons, all agree with their original placement. And the genetic studies just about all agree with this new placement. And they, but basically they always disagree. Interesting. This is something that comes up a lot um, with phylogeny. So phylogeny is, of course, trying to determine the relationships via the evolutionary history of different groups of animals. Yes. And it's a a long-standing issue that, eh, not an issue, but it certainly comes up, that for a long, long time we were going purely on anatomy. Yeah. And when we started comparing genetics, we find that for, you know, in large part, they agree. Yeah, most Especially times. in the big scale. But when you get to the more detailed relationships, there's a bunch of places where something... Obviously, we're missing something. And they're conflicting signals. This one is a, a long-standing one with crocodilians in general because those long, skinny, snouted crocs, which we call longirostrine, which <laughs> is long nose. Long nose. Yeah. It's the, it's the Pinocchio crocs. <laughs> Those skinny-snouted crocs typically are cited as being fish eaters. A skinny snout lets you move more easily in the water and catch fish. Right. Interestingly enough, the false gharial is not a strictly fish eater. I did a whole report on the fact that they've been known to eat pigs, monkeys, and have been positively ID'd as man-eaters a couple of times. Wow. And yet have a snout that looks like a broomstick. So it's it's one of those things where you, it is not a clear definer, but it's actually a fairly common design. There's also a true crocodile known as the slender snout crocodile in Africa, who has right. also actually recently been moved into its own grouping. Still within crocodiles, but no longer crocodilus. It's actually Interesting. Uh, mesotops. And it's now. another evolution of that long, skinny nose. Much like the otters we were talking about with multiple, possibly multiple evolutions of a tooth. It's, we have hobby. a nice ongoing theme of uh, scientific debate. I love it. And that long nose design shows up in multiple species of crocodilians today, but also throughout the, hist- the fossil history. And it's a very similar design, but it's really hard to tell. Do you guys have this because you're related or just because it's good for eating fish. Right. And it keeps popping up, much like the overall crocodilian shape does in fossil history. So it's one of those things where it's hard to track, which makes the whole fossil history very hard to map, or very hard to agree on the mapping. Interesting. So that that's the a quick overview of the, the modern guys and how they're related and 
it's one of those subjects I could go into and into, but so on and so forth. I I listen to, you know, I, I'm a listener, and I listen to this podcast not just to hear about living things. I want to hear about cool <laughs> dead things. Oh, well, thank you very much for writing in, listener. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, we what do we have here? Your name is Robert Plant. <laughs> <laughs> and so... We absolutely have a whole bunch to talk about fossilized. Uh, so, crocodilian fossil history is super rich and actually way more diverse in the past than it is now. We only have a small glimpse of what used to be. Hmm. Oh, yeah, only 20, you know, no more than 25 species. Yeah, which is sad because it's one of those things where we know from looking at the fossils that we had some really cool and diverse selection in the past. But on the flip side, when there's only 25 species, a single person can study all 25 yeah. and study the entire grouping of that animal really easily. So we have some really detailed studies of the modern ones, which is nice, but also I miss the old ones. Yeah. If only the world were overrun with crocodilians. It would be just such a wonderful place to wake up in. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so crocodilian history goes back roughly 100 million years or the modern crocodilians we see, the groups that we have now today, show up late Cretaceous, and their slightly earlier ancestors show up beginning of Cretaceous. So right. Cretaceous is when what we would recognize as true crocodiles first show up. Okay, so Cretaceous is the third segment of the age of reptiles. Yes. Yeah, so these guys were evolving around the later dinosaurs. And some of the big famous ones. Yeah. And so this is definitely where you start to see the more recognizable ones. We also get, though, some really interesting ones. You know, o really quick overview of where crocodiles fall within the group of reptiles. Since we have them around the same time as dinosaurs, and you commonly hear the phrasing of, I, I can't count how many times I've heard people say, oh, look at the alligator, it looks like a dinosaur, or it's, you know, sh it's basically a dinosaur, or yeah. comparing them to dinosaurs because right, they're the right. biggest reptile we have now. Yes. They are distantly related to dinosaurs, but are very much not dinosaurs. Yes, completely separate yes. lineages. So, in within Reptilia, there is a group known as Archosaurs. Yep. And Archosaurs splits into two main branches, one containing crocodiles and all of their ancestors and relatives. Mm-hmm. All things more croc-like than not, basically, is the description of that category. The big crocodile branch yes. of the archosaur family tree. And the other half being everything with dinosaurs and birds and a number of the other famous archosaurs from the past. Yes. Yeah. So for to put that into perspective with reptiles, reptiles as a whole are split into two major groups. Yes. One group is the Lepidosaurs, which is lizards and snakes and some of their relatives. Archosaurs is the other major group, and it is split into the crocodile lineage uh, with all the crocs and their cousins, and the bird dinosaur lineage with all of them. And then there's turtles, and who the heck knows where <laughs> turtles go? Yeah, no. The turtle, where does a turtle fit in the phyl phylogenetic tree? Wherever it wants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they're they're tough. Well, but that's another segue. We'll we'll we'll, we'll, hit we'll that go into uh, whether or not they're anapsids later. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the cool thing about this relation is it actually makes birds crocodilians' closest living relative today. 
Yes, and they have a surprising lot in common. Yeah, they really do. Uh, both are very vocal. Both are both have four chambered hearts. Yeah, and there's a couple of behavioral things uh, along with the vocalizations that are exciting because since both of them have it, it's likely other past archosaurs did. Yeah, both very good parents. That that can help us draw conclusions about things like dinosaurs and other pa- past archosaurs. It's one of the really interesting things about alligators and crocs is that, you know, you think of them as big lizards, but it turns out they're actually really weird for reptiles. Yeah. Uh, Like you mentioned with the heart, they have a really complex circulatory system. They also have a really developed respiratory system. Absolutely. They actually, you know, birds are famous for their, you know, when, when we breathe, we breathe in. And back out through the same tube. Just like the bag creature we talked about before, where its food yeah. goes in and then back out. Yeah. We, we breathe that. We poop that. our old air. We poop our old air right, out, right back out our mouths. <laughs> we have to make everything gross. Um, but birds are famous because they have a complex system where the air doesn't cross. It comes mm-hmm. in, it goes in a loop, and then comes back out. So it's more efficient. Their air is not, you know backflowing over itself. Yeah, you're not polluting your new air with old air and so on and so forth. Yeah. We, it's now known that crocodilians have that too. To a less, you know, they're not quite as as complicated as the bird system, but they have this unidirectional mm-hmm. respiratory system, which is a, which was a huge surprise when we found that. It's, it's they, they are uh, subject to one of the things that lots of animals get, but especially with them, where people assumed they were prehistoric and therefore more basic in their design. Right. Ancient and, un, you know, undeveloped. And so therefore, people just assumed that they would have the older, you know, crappier model of just about every body part you could have. Yeah. And now we're finding that it's not the case. You know, just recent, you know, just within our lifetime, have people started realizing, hey, they're actually smart enough that you can train crocs. Yes, and there was that story, um, oh, that was just a few years ago, of the first documented tool use. Right? That was okay. in the, um, oh, I don't remember what species it was. It's uh, There's a couple that they've seen it in. And where they were carrying, only during nesting season, Yes. for birds, they would carry sticks around on their noses, and when birds went to pick them up, they would snap at them. Yes, and that's fantastic it's been seen in the american alligator and the cuban crocodile which is one of my all-time favorites because not only is it it's one of the spunkiest it's known as among many as the most aggressive Hmm. uh but it's also one of the most terrestrial they're very smart and they were actually one of the first ones that people started training with interesting because they're so aggressive. When a feeder would come in, all four crocodiles would rush out of the water and run at the gate, mouths open. <laughs> and and, and then the feeder would stand there and hold his hands out like Chris Pratt. <laughs> click, 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 click. click, click. <laughs> Inappropriately using the clickers. <laughs> so one person finally decided, hey, let's try training them. Because they had noticed during shows that while saying... They had named the crocodiles just for the fun of the audience... But while calling out, it's like, all right, now we're going to see if we can get old Jim Bob or blah, blah, blah over here. And they started noticing the crocodiles would actually start moving over when they called the name. Cool. 
and they actually can. Both of our alligators at the aquarium know their name, as do our smaller juveniles, and they can learn a number of training activities to make them safer to work with and easier to handle during medical exams and stuff like that. Cool. Really a, a surprising group of animals. Yeah. So they have a, they do have a very simple, small brain, but it is a, a very really highly programmed, if you will, to where with the amount of brain that they have, they're doing a lot. Yeah. Cool. I'm sorry. We, we said we were going to talk about fossils. We, were doing to, we are going to talk about fossils <laughs> right now. Uh, so I kind of chose a couple of cool examples of fossil crocs from our groups today. Cool. Uh, and the first, I'll start off with one group that is actually no longer around today that falls oh, within okay. crocodilians, mm-hmm. but it's, uh, they're called the Pristy Champids, uh, which right. has Pristy Champus in it. Yes. These were unique crocodiles, often called the hoofed crocodiles. Weird. And this is because their toes ended in little blunt hoof-like points. Like the tips of their toes were very hoof-like in shape. As opposed to the sort of sprawled, clawed, webbed feet that we see in the modern groups. Exactly. So it's, it's thinking that instead of using claws to dig or to scoot around mud, that these guys were running, that they were terrestrial running crocodiles. And this is supported because they have, they still have the long snout, but instead of being flattened, they're actually skinny sideways. They are raised up and skinny down the side, or, or flattened down the sides. Interesting. Teeth that have a similar shape. So their teeth are what we call ziphodont, which is one of my favorite words because it was, it is, oh. it coined for the, it, it is used often for the coolest crocs. Yeah. Varanid uh, monitor lizards have Zipidon teeth, too. Absolutely. So you see a number of dinosaurs that have these and mo- modern monitors. This is teeth that are flattened sideways and often serrated along the edges. Yes. Which are made for cutting. This is... So the image we're painting here of a crocodile, a crocodilian that is made for running, or at least moving on land with a face that instead of being flattened top to bottom is flattened side to side with slicey teeth is basically what dinosaurs had. Yes. Like that's what the big meat-eating dinosaurs had. Similar teeth, similar head structure made for running around on land. And that's one of the cool things about looking at a crocodilian fossil history is that you find out that it was not just dinosaurs that were big predators you had to be aware of. There were other large reptiles running around on land and in water that were snapping up prey. Cool. Uh, and so these guys, they got the coin ter- the term coined when I gave a talk at the aquarium of wolf crocs, is what everyone started calling them, and now has stuck with among my coworkers there. And already one of my favorite groups, and this is not the only terrestrial predatory crocs we'll talk about throughout their fossil history. Yeah. Uh, the, so the next ones are within Crocodilia, which is the true modern crocodiles. Right. And they had one branch known as the Mechasuchians, who is hmm. a strictly Australian group of crocodilians. And they're unique for the fact that they were really diverse. Many of them appear to be terrestrial. And we keep saying appear because it's hard to, you know, you have to look at the whole bone structure of an animal and the shape of the skull to decide where was it living because it's not like you find them 
in a position like mid breaststroke, you know, right. showing them that they were swimming, it's they're a pile of bones. Yeah. But most of them appear to be terrestrial. There's some with crushing teeth, some were uh herbivorous, plant eating crocs. That's super weird. Yeah. Which has actually been cited a couple of times with modern guys eating fruit from trees. Uh, that's right, they have. Yeah, so that's that's something that is also got ignored. But backtracking, uh, forward tracking. Whatever, um, tracking. Yeah, my favorite one, and I still need to read up more on this individual fossil, but there's one fossil that shows signs that it may have been arboreal. So like tree monitor croc. <laughs> What? That's really interesting, actually, because you see that in a lot of lizards. Yeah. That even some big lizards that climb up trees. Yes. So the idea of a crocodile, a crocodilian, ooh, wow. Yeah. That's weird. And it's also neat because, once again, that's something that's recently been cited in modern juvenile crocodilians, is that the babies will actually climb up into trees because it gives them a good lookout for predators and potential prey and all sorts of stuff. And the reason we weren't seeing it is because they were on lookout. So when you turn the corner, they've already jumped back into the water by the time you get there. <laughs> it wasn't until they started asking for eyewitness accounts of locals that people started being like, yeah, they did that all the time. Wow, what do you mean you like didn't know? The crocodile Heisenberg uncertainty. Is it Heisenberg uncertainty? <laughs> Whatever the one is that says observing if, something. If you observe it. it. Heisenberg might be the um, velocity and position. I think that is it. Thing. Uh, well, this this is wrong, not a I'll, podcast I'll for out. about physics. We are paleontologists. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is why we do this job, not the other one. Yes, we, we chose, I, I specifically chose the science that was the farthest from math and physics. Uh, although, it's funny. depending on what you do in paleontology, oh, yeah. you can get into really cool physics stuff. It's funny, I, uh, I actually tutored physics for a short period, and I now remember none of the equations. Uh, it's a shame. Uh, <laughs> so, lots of cool crocodiles. Now, we get into a couple of really cool guys with the gharials and the uh, alligator ancestors and relatives. Of course, the most famous of all fossil crocodilians are the really big ones. And there's actually a bunch of them. Yeah. Surprisingly, none of them really are true crocodiles. The, the biggest true crocodile in the fossil record is only about 25 feet long. There's a couple of them that get around that. Huh. Compared to modern, the biggest crocodiles, around 20 or so. Just over 20 feet. You know, yeah. Not quite 21. So it's big, but not crazy big. Yeah. Uh, the biggest gharial is uh, Giprosuchus, and it was about 30 feet long. Which is big. Still had the long, skinny snout, which is cool. Yeah. Alligators, the whole alligatorid family, uh, or, or grouping, takes the cake on on the couple here with Dinosuchus, who is probably the most, or one of the most famous fossil crocodilians. He was until another one was discovered, and now they're pretty even. Dinosuchus, for for all of you that might recognize, if you've, just about if you've ever seen a picture of a fossil crocodile attacking a dinosaur, most likely was Dinosuchus. Yes. So Dinosuchus was back in the Cretaceous living alongside dinosaurs. Absolutely. Whereas those other ones we were mentioning were much more recent. Yes, the uh, the Pristy Champions and Mekasukians were both after the dinosaurs. Right. And getting into the age of mammals. Dinosuchus was during the Mesozoic and reached about 40 feet long, <laughs> which gave it about a six foot long skull. 
and it's it's an intimidating skull. It has a very typical crocodilian look to it, or crocodile look to it, even. It has the same snout shape and everything, but it is actually an ancient relative of alligators. And the reason this is important is because crocodiles have salt glands, meaning they can handle right. saltier water, while alligators and their cousins do not. Hmm. But yet Dinosuchus has been found in marine environments, so it may have been much like large alligators will do today and go forage in coastal or saltier areas to get right, new right. food. And, well, when you're that big, you know, you probably have to go far and wide to find oh, food. Yeah. And you can also handle more salt. You know, the bigger you are, it takes a lot more salt water to make you sit. That's true. That's a good yeah. thing. That's one thing people pointed out with adult alligators today is that it's more likely that they can survive it because you know, I've got, you know, an extra 800 pounds than the little guy. So that's a lot yeah. more salt water for me to absorb before I get sick. Cool. Uh, another cousin, but this is in the Caymans family tree now, is Purusaurus, mm -hmm. which is another 40-foot monster with a six-foot skull. Its skull, though, is more reminiscent in, sh in like shape overall of T-Rex. It was very broad, very thick. It was not your it was not your typical long snout at all. It just has this huge Pac-Man mouth. Weird. It was a big intimidating predator. How, where when when was Purosaurus? Purosaurus was uh after the dinosaurs in South America. Uh oh. I'd have to double check its exact aging, but it's uh, actually lived alongside another weird fossil caiman called uh, Morosuchus. Heard of that one. This one is cool because it has a really weird mouth. And so there's another croc that has a similar mouth called Stomatosuchus, and basically they had a giant duckbill flat surfboard mouth. Weird. It was long and thin and flat, and the bottom jaw was this, this little band of bone that went around the bottom with very tiny teeth dotting the top and bottom. Weird. And the original, one of the original designs just thought that maybe they sat there and wait with their mouth open and just once a fish came through would grab it. But some other reconstructions have thought that maybe it had a big g a pouch on the bottom. Like a Like pelican? whales or a pelican. Oh. <laughs> and it was scooping up fish. Which is not that crazy because modern crocodilians have loose skin on the bottom that they can relax to act as a pouch when carrying young. Really interesting. Which is, <laughs> I really want it to be true. I really wow. want that to be how they were using it. <laughs> uh, incidentally, I looked it up uh, yes. real quick because I have a list of my own here. Uh, Purosaurus I have listed as Miocene. Yes, that's what I thought. Right, I was so. pretty sure they were uh, uh, fairly young. So that puts it at... Somewhere in the vicinity of the age of that giant otter we were talking about. Yes, exactly. And so now there's lots more interesting fossil crocodilians. Lots of uniquely shaped ones. Lots of we have we had one fossil alligator from a, another site that our professor was working on at the museum, who, in total length, as an adult, his head was not quite a foot long. A little guy. Yeah, the itty bitty crocodile that uh, the little alligator that when full grown. His head would be, probably be about maybe 10 inches. Huh. And that was as big as it would ever get, which was way smaller than any <laughs> species today. <laughs> and that was at the, this is the Gray Fossil site? Yeah, that was one that Blaine had been working on, uh, that alligator, from another site. Uh, I, I believe it was South American, if I remember right. Interesting. Also, the uh, it's about the same age as that otter. Mm-hmm. Cool. So one thing yeah. that is, that's really coming up here 
is, and this is another, this isn't a scientific debate so much as a terminology debate, more than most other animals, crocodiles get labeled as this term living fossils. Yes. Which is a term that a lot of paleontologists aren't really happy with. Uh, because, And we could do a whole episode about that. I mean, we should. Uh, the sh- and we should. The short version is it gives the impression that thing the species haven't changed at all, which is mm-hmm. almost always not true. But in the case of crocodiles, you know, you always think about them, you know, they've been around and they haven't changed in since the time of the dinosaurs. And while, you know, you have some like Dinosuchus who literally did live during the time of the dinosaurs mm-hmm. and did have a very similar body shape and perhaps even habits to some living species, we, there's been a lot of weirdness in the crocodilian family tree, the terrestrial running crocs and herbivorous crocs and possible you know, climbing crocs and pelican crocs, you know, this is not, you you know, this is not a group that... A static. Yeah, there's been a lot of cool evolutionary experimentation. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that I often try to emphasize with that phrase that, first off, it's not a official term. Like, people often treat it like, oh, there's a classification and some animals fall into the living fossil classification. It's like, no, that's no paleontologist actively label something as that because it's misleading. Yeah. Yes. Crocodilians are very conservative in their body design in that there have been animals, even not related to crocodilians going back over 200 million years that look and as far as we can tell, live basically like a crocodile, short legs, long body, armored back, long jaw, living in the water. It's a good design when that's where you're living, but it ignores and it leads you away from the realization that there was a whole lot of other options that also came up. So it's a misleading term. So they experimented with a bunch of different things, and just over the course of the Cenozoic, we have lost all that diversity except for the relatively Mm -hmm. samey groups that we have today. Which are, for the most part, the, the generalist design of right anywhere it is warm, and there is water, and there is prey, a crocodilian can survive, and that's made evident by the fact that there's actually an invasive population of caiman in Florida <laughs> that were brought over during pet trades. Man. <laughs> if it's warm and you move them there, they're going to pretty much be okay, because they're yeah. all generalists. It's the same issue with rats and dogs and cats that get brought to new places. Yeah, it's a, it's a lifestyle and a body shape that works really, really well. Mm-hmm. So with the ones that were more specialized, couldn't always keep up. Indeed. So when you move further back into crocodilian history, you start getting into their ancestors in a group that's that a large group that is often encompassed into the crocodilomorphs, which has a number of branches and is really a, a constantly changing mess when it comes to phylogenetics because there are so many different individuals that look a lot alike but also look really different. And <laughs> whether yeah. they're related or different or related to this guy or that, and it's constantly shifting. The One of the books I read about it was very clear when they gave their family tree talking about the fossils in that this is not the family tree. This is the family tree we're using. <laughs> this is one of many possible family trees you could find yeah. if you go look it up. <laughs> 
So we're looking at now, you know, we talked about crocodilians and mm-hmm. the ancient cousins that fit into that core group. Absolutely. Uh, which is still represented today. Now we're stepping, you know, crocodilomorpha is them plus all their cousins and c- encompassing a big chunk of that crocodile half of the archosaur family tree. So these are the second cousins of the crocodilians. And this gets into some of the really weird, diverse body shapes that, that their ancestors took on. Basically, to, to give a bit of a timeline, Crocodilomorpha first shows up at the end of the Triassic with the oldest ancestors to this group in our modern crocs at the beginning of the Triassic. So relatives right. of crocodiles have basically been around as long as dinosaurs have and yeah. actually line up their timelines pretty well. So it's aptly named the age of reptiles for the Mesozoic. Yeah, the, the the Triassic was the time where you started to see the beginnings of not only the crocodile lineage and dinosaurs, also pterosaurs mm-hmm. and turtles. Um, there's evidence that lizards go back that far. Yes. Uh, so the the mammals as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the origination of, of a lot of the major groups we have today kicked off way back then. And uh, you get some really cool ones in that early stuff. This is where you get actually a lot of dinosaur mimics before the dinosaur versions showed up. Yeah. You get a number of predatory crocodilian ancestors that are large terrestrial predatory ancestors, the Rausukians, which has Postosuchus. For anyone who watched Walking with Dinosaurs, it's the really big guy chasing Coelophysis around. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is actually outside of Crocodilomorpha yes. itself. So this is before we get into the closer relatives, but you get a lot of things cool things there that are filling in for dinosaurs before dinosaurs take the lead. Yeah. Uh, you get big predators like that. The Adosaurs were armored herbivores. Yep, we're all spiky and knobby. They look basically like a croc's answer to an ankylosaurus. Yep. The big armored dinosaurs. And then one of the coolest ones to me is the Papasaurs, which really look like theropod mimics. Like, they were very lightly built. They had longer necks very compressed predatory heads. Some of them may have even been bipedal. And there's even some evidence that due to their body shape and what it's suggesting of their behavior, they might have been slightly endothermic. Interesting. So, quote-unquote, warm-blooded. Yeah, exactly. So they were basically croc theropods, which are the famous two-legged predatory dinosaurs, T-Rex and Allosaurus and all of those. So the crocs, if if not doing it first, were... Doing it around the same time as yeah, the dinosaurs were starting. They were to. attempting. It was it was uh, very likely a close call on who was going to be the dominant reptile during the Triassic. Man, so yeah, back during the Triassic, you know, all these the Edosaurs, the Rawasukians, the the Popasaurs, Not only were these all showing up around the same time the earliest dinosaurs were starting, but they were kind of dominating the ecosystems at that time before the dinosaurs really took off. Yeah, for a while, Postosuchus was the largest land predator wherever it was found. So there were a bunch of these, like, basically nature's early experiments with crocodilians. You know, we're, we're not, you know, crocodilians are still a long way out. Yeah, but still, with the, the croc, you know, family history. Yeah. So eventually, at the end of Triassic, there was a sizable extinction. Yeah. And crocodilomorphs were one of the only groups within the crocodilian lineage that survived on. And that's what we get for the rest of the time of the dinosaurs, including modern crocs. Right. 
here's where you get some of the really weird guys. Yes. Uh, and really <laughs> cool ones. So I actually wanted to start with one that I know you were really interested in, the Thaladosuchets. Yes, oh my which goodness. Is the Marine Crocs. They might be my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> really cool. They, that's it's super good stuff. If you want, if you if you want to go on that one, because th- these guys are fun. Yeah, no. So the I don't know a ton about them, so feel free to jump. Yeah, in absolutely. When I forget stuff, but the Thaladosuchids or the Thaladosuchians basically were a major group of these crocodile morphs, uh, croc cousins that became marine and fully aquatic. And you had one group uh, that was not qu- you know, there were two groups. One was marine and not quite as specialized. Yeah, the teleosaurs. The teleosaurs. And they included a... There was actually a new discovery recently of a species called Machimosaurus rex. Yes. Which was a marine crocodilian, crocodilomorph, the, uh, roughly the size of Dinosuchus <laughs> that we were talking about before. It was a 10 meter or so marine crocodil- crocodilomorph, which is, they really just dominated a bunch of different ecosystems. Oh, yeah. Like, it, it's, we always portray certain reptiles as ruling the land back then, but really there's a bunch going on, all fighting for the top spot. Yeah. And that, and Metriorhynchus, uh, I'm sorry, Machimosaurus, I jumped ahead was also late Jurassic, early Cretaceous, mm-hmm. which means that it was swimming around in the ocean along with some of the famous big marine reptiles, like the plesiosaurs yeah. and the ichthyosaurs. Um, the other half of that marine croc group was much more specialized. The, these are the metriorhynchids. Oh, they're so cool. And this is... Re- uh, my favorite animals are always the ones that are the most different from yes. their core group. <laughs> That's I see what everyone else is doing. I'm going to go this way with it. I'm going to do another thing. Um, this is, in paleontology, we refer to things as basal. Mm-hmm. If they're sort of, uh, or conservative, mm-hmm. if they're kind of sticking to the same style as their ancestors. Yes. And derived if they're very changed. Well, the metriorhynchids were... Dolphin crocs? Yeah. <laughs> their front flip fins had, or their front arms had become flippers, essentially. And their tails, this is my favorite thing about them. Their tails went nice and long, turned down at the end, and had a piece that stuck up, so they had like a shark fin at the end of their tail. They had fluked tails. It's yeah, crazy. So these were very specialized aquatic crocodilomorphs. Yeah, and their their back feet were on the way to becoming flippers. They had very much like turtle-esque back feet where they were webbed but still had toes. Interesting. Just a, such a cool group. And it's, it's neat what that can what conclusion we can draw from that because you know, much like many aquatic animals now, with that body style, it's not likely they were crawling up on beaches. Right. So it's very likely or very possible right. that they were giving live birth. Interesting. Which is something that a lot of those other big marine reptiles did. Exactly. Which is really cool yeah it's really really awesome another one to add to the list that i wish was still around yes that's <laughs> <laughs> basically what this whole thing could be relabeled as is uh animals will wish weren't extinct it's something actually that though the modern world is just far too depauperate in is large marine carnivorous reptiles yes just not that's... we need more of those 7.8 out of 10 we really do not enough water reptiles <laughs> <laughs> and so th- those are probably some of the most sp- 
specialized of all of the Kraken Fillmore. I'm shaking my head at my uh, own. That was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're leaving it in. We're not editing yeah. that one out. <laughs> There's a trend going on here. So those are probably the most derived and specialized. Uh, you get a lot of others that have gone in unique routes mm-hmm. for the Crocodilla family history. The Notosuchia is probably one of my one of the most interesting ones to me, just because they are so different but still have the overall body design but these were in in many ways mammal mimics almost they were taking on typically what nowadays is mammal roles of those most of them are smaller there's a few that got bigger but they were i think the biggest one was 10 feet long but they're usually smaller just a, you know three four maybe five feet long and many were terrestrial and they had the unique thing about this group is they all had unique dentition. Their teeth were not the typical just sharp cones that you see in most crocodilian and crocodilomorph families and uh, species. Mm. There was an herbivorous one named uh, Simosuchus who had clove-shaped teeth that were, you know, multiple cusped for plant eating. Weird. And was also small. I think it was only about three feet long max and had a blunt little pug face and was heavily armored all around. And the reconstructions for it are by far the cutest croc-like <laughs> animal I've ever seen. <laughs> and so you had guys like that. You had uh, two... There was actually three that were found within the same formation, known as rat, dog, and duck croc. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're common names. Yeah. And they were named that because both the the rat and the dog croc were very much terrestrial, small crocodile or crocodilomorphs that had shorter snouts with differently shaped teeth and seem to be filling kind of the role of what you would expect a badger or a raccoon, you know, small foraging in the underbrush animals. Interesting. That, the, the reason those teeth are really interesting is that for the most part, there are exceptions, but for the most part, outside of mammals, animals pretty much have very samey teeth. Yes. Uh, within an animal, you know, uh, most animals, their teeth are pretty much all the same throughout the mouth. What may, one of the things that's unique about mammals is that they have, you know, you have four different c- categories of teeth in your mouth. You've got the snipping incisors, the sharp canines, the chewing molars and premolars in the back. So to see that showing up in the crocodile family lineage is a really interesting development. Well before you know mammals properly took over. Yeah, exactly. So it, it gives them. Abilities that, because t- one of the reasons that mammals were so successful is those specialized teeth. We were able to mold our teeth to a, any diet as evolution went on. And so you can have mammals eating sorts, all sorts of stuff yeah. outside of what they started. These guys seem to be doing the same thing. Interesting. My favorite out one with that subject is Pacasuchus, which when I first saw the picture of the skull, looked like just like a relative of a badger or something. It has smaller teeth up front, two large canine-like teeth, and then very much molar-like teeth in the back. It has almost an identical concept for a tooth uh, layout as mammals do. Really cool. And it's really awesome. You also get weird ones like uh, the one known as Duck Croc, Mm -hmm. which had a, it was a a Natasuchus, has a flat bill-like snout that upturns at the front 
and they're not really sure what it was doing. It may have been kind of <laughs> truffling. It may have had a really sensitive snout and mouth area that it was like yeah. looking through mud for stuff and like a platypus. Yeah, exactly, like a like a platypus croc. It also had these weird buck teeth at the front and particularly long claws, so it may have been a burrower and That's rooting things bizarre. out. It, but it, it, it's a crocodilomorph. It's it's a little <laughs> rooting, you know, buck tooth. Cro- it's they're so weird compared to what we know today. Very, very strange. So the next group generally I want to talk about is talking about some of the weird ones. I kind of want to talk about some of the BA ones. Uh, at the end, there's two big guys in Crocodile Morph that are two of my favorites and two of the more well-known ones now because of how extreme they are. This would be Caprasuchus and Sarcosuchus, yeah. which are two of the cool guys. Caprasuchus is actually... In, in its own group now, and is the known the common name was boar croc. Boar like a wild boar. Boar like a wild boar. Uh, yeah. It had four teeth, top and bottom, that stuck outside of the jaw, and the ones on the bottom stuck up very much like wild boar tusks. Terrifying. And so it had these huge teeth. It also has two little bony horns in the back. Nothing that was probably used for impaling, but just two little bumps in the back of the skull just to make it look more intimidating and the it also has a weird thing and they're not sure exactly what it was there for but the front of the snout has a texturing that makes it look like maybe there is a keratin like a like fingernail material <laughs> sheath or cap basically kind of a beak on the front that may have been used for protection while attacking or for ramming its prey and they just have the skull, but it all points to a large terrestrial predator with just a movie monster mouth. <laughs> That's that. What that sounds like is the crocodilomorph version of an entelodont. Yes, yes, that is an excellent comparison. And we shouldn't go off on a tangent and talk about entelodonts, but I'll, just for the for people who don't know what an entelodont is, terror pig. Terror pig. Google it. Yes. <laughs> we'll talk about them eventually. That actually came up at work today because someone was asking about cool fossil animals (laughs) that, funnily enough, need to be made into Pokemon. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it's about time. That was one of the ones I said. They should make an Ateliathon Pokemon. I approve. Yes. So Caprasuchus was this... Now, when they first estimated they were saying 20 feet, new studies have said 11, which is probably more reasonable. Okay. But it was still this large, you know, horrifying... Uh, creature, and it's it's by far got one of the coolest looking skulls. I've, it's a really well preserved skull. It was huh. actually a almost wholly complete, and so that's one of the other reasons it made such a big deal. Sarcosuchus is probably the more famous, and most people have heard about it, if only in passing, because its catchphrase, its nickname is Super Croc. Yep. And when it came out, uh, it is now it's not actually a croc. We're uh, we're already established that since we're in Crocodile Morpha, it's a Philidosaur, yeah. which is a separate group. I also love its full name, which is Sarcosuchus Imperator, which basically means the Flesh Crocodile Emperor. <laughs> <laughs> which is just intimidation factor 10. Because yeah, Tyrant Lizard King was taken. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so this was another hugely large croc, a hugely huge uh, about a 40-foot-long crocodilomorph. Once again, six-foot skull, so we're right on par with Purosaurus and Dinosuchus. Yep. It's cool with these three because you actually get the three 
big uh, big groups or generalized groups for crocodilian skull shape. Oh, interesting. Dinosuchus is what we would call brevirostrine, which means it is just generally kind of stout, kind of wide, generalized snout. Your typical crocodile, just that what you typically think of. Right. Purosaurus would be what we call platyrostrine, which is the wider, broader, shorter snouts usually used for taking down tougher stuff. Right. Uh, lots of those guys eat snails. Our American alligator would fall in this category, and they're very much turtle eaters. Mm-hmm. And then laundry rostering, which you talked about earlier, which is what Sarcosuchus has. It, they actually has a very gharial-like snout. So even though you'll see pictures of it taking down dinosaurs, it was most likely taking down still really big, but big fish. Interesting. Sarcosuchus, it's interesting because we've been talking about all these different crocodilomorph groups that did weird things. Yes. But correct me if I'm wrong, but Sarcosuchus was doing pretty much the classic crocodilian body shape thing. Same, like similar to Dinosuchus, similar to modern gators and crocs. Yes. So that, you know, even among all this crazy diversity, you still had some groups that were doing the, you know, the base, the, the sort of classic version. Absolutely. And, and it's it's even to the extent that they think that Sarcosuchus is more slightly more aquatic, just like modern Indian gharial. And so it was a, a water-dwelling fish eater for the most part. Uh, and you see that retention of that body design going back way, even to animals not ancestry to crocodilians. The phytosaurs were a group of reptiles offshooting just before archosaurs. Way, way, way back. Way back. They showed that they were around beginning of the Triassic and just before, and they look like crocodiles. They have the long snout. They have the same body design. The only big difference is that instead of the nose being at the end of the snout, it was right up between the eyes. Yeah. But once again, if you're living in the water and attacking things on the shore, that body design is good when we see this even in big amphibians, even, you know, way, way earlier. Yeah, way back in the fossil record. And so it's it's a body design that came up convergently as much as it did ancestrally, which is what makes it so hard to track. Yeah, it's hard to follow the development of such a commonly repeated feature. Exactly. Crocodilians and crocodilomorphs are all sorts of weird. Oh, they're, they're, they're fantastic because there's so many weird ones that we have no specific idea on what they were doing because they are so odd. And that happens with lots of fossil animals, but yeah, it's especially neat because we have guys, you know, and uh, descendants of these guys living today, but we have no clue what their ancestor was doing because it's just, why do you need a face that's shaped like that? I don't know what you're doing with it. <laughs> and we have very few things to compare them to directly today. Mm-hmm. This is, this is a, a trend that comes, it's one of the cool things about, like we were talking about last episode, what you sort of get privy to when you learn about the fossil record is you start to realize that many of the groups of cool animals we have today are but a small portion of historical diversity. It's like getting behind-the-scenes look at animals you already know. Yes, you get to see all the weird experiments from the past and times where they weren't really all that experimental, but actually the, you know, something different was common yeah. for a while. Yeah, the, the saber-toothed cats fall in that group where there was tons of them. And we still don't know how they were eating with those. <laughs> yeah, we still there's still discussion over it. Yeah, what? How were you using something like that? That's so extreme. But there was a wide variety. 
Yeah, that was kind of standard in certain mm-hmm. in in certain phylogenetic groups. It's like when you look back at a different generation's clothes style, and you can't figure out for whatever reason they would wear that, but it made sense <laughs> back then. Yeah, it's, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Yeah, exactly. That's what it's like. Is it, we're trying to look back and going, I don't understand why you were doing that. It's like, well, yeah, but it made sense if you were there. You yeah. just don't have it now, so you don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't understand us. Yeah. Uh, Shut up, you, Grandpa. You, you kids today with your crocodilians restricted to the equatorial regions and what? You mean all of them swim? <laughs> yeah, that's all you, you don't. Have, you don't have any herbivorous tree climbing crocs. <laughs> what kind of age is this? When I was, when in my day, <laughs> crocs the size of buses. It's it. They're fantastic. Quickly before we run out of time. Yeah. Do you want to hit the last thing real yeah, quick? Yeah. Kind of hit our last section. Before we closed out, I wanted to speak on the fact that I actually researched crocodilians. That's what my focus has always been on, but my research for my thesis was on the modern American alligator, which is first off a thing a lot of people don't realize that paleontologists often study modern animals. Uh, I believe we touched on that last time a bit, but studying the modern helps you better understand the past, and you can almost not understand the past at all if you don't look at what you have in front of you. You know, if you can't look at the modern and how they move and how they live and how their things look when they're pristine, the looking at the past alone is is nothing but a mystery. Yeah. Uh, you need that reference between how is it working today, so how might it have been working back then. And my study was on the skull of the American alligator and specifically the individual bones and how they change in shape as the animal grows. And so this would be in ont- a study on ontogeny. So you were looking at baby gator skulls and then, you know, mid-sized gator skulls mm-hmm. and adult gator skulls. And studies like that have been done in the past with uh, the American alligator and other species, but they were always done with the full skull. Right. We were using what we call disarticulated, so skulls that were taken apart into all their individual bones. And I took a selection from the snout and through the middle of the skull to the back and mm-hmm. a couple pieces on the side to get an idea of how was the overall shape of the skull changing within each bone. So which bones right. were changing more? How was each bone changing? And so this was much more of a descriptive study instead of, you know, I'm not trying to make an argument with this study. I'm trying to learn something that we hadn't looked at yet. Right. And especially useful for fossil stuff or paleontological study because looking at the whole skull is great, but when you're looking at fossils... If you get the whole skull, you're lucky. Yes, that is a that is a one in a you know hundred you know or more find. Yeah, that you find something truly intact. Yeah. So the skull of a you know an alligator skull is made up of twenty or so different bones, and most of them yeah. have to come in twos on either yeah. side. Absolutely. Well, it's many 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 a croc species are identified by the maxilla, which is the bone on the top that has the majority of the teeth, and that's for many species. All the, it's a pristine maxilla, but that's the only bone from the animal that there is or that was intact well enough to study. So studying the separate parts makes it easier to compare it to fossils. And by studying the age growth, it can make it easier when you look. If you get a piece of an alligator skull, you can compare it. Was this a juvenile or did it wasn't an adult who had juvenile traits? Right. Process in uh, paleontology we call, uh, I'm blanking on the term right now. Uh, Pedomorphism. 
anamorphism and neoteny is whenever you retain juvenile traits into adulthood yeah this is this is common in lots of animals people even pointed out in humans that we have bigger heads and that could be a case of neoteny because we have bigger brains now but we also have effectively big baby heads when you compare us to other primates yes that kind of trait is something to be looked at with other crocodilians. If it's a smaller species, is it still shaped the same as an adult, or did it basically stop growing as a teenager, and now right, that's as right. big as that one gets, so on and so forth? That's really interesting. It's it's interesting to be able to take the skull apart and notice. You know, it's one thing to be able to say, here's generally how the skull changes, but to be able to go in and look at each individual bone and how the changes throughout growth are happening... It gives you just a whole extra level of detail. And it's it's one of those things where I'd love to, you know, go back and do the rest of the bones someday when I have the time to continue and finish the study. Uh, yeah. Hopefully someday in the future. Cool stuff. All right. Well, I, I think that's about at the the end of our discussion and everything we were planning to cover. Crocodilians are, are a really cool group. They really are. Like, it's, it's just every day there'll be some moment when I walk by the alligators or when I'm thinking about it, they're just, I re- they're really fascinating to me. Cool. So next time, uh, so this, you know, Will kind of got to do an episode about his favorite group. Next time Ooh. I will do an episode following this, this sort of pattern of my favorite group of animals. And so don't, don't tell us what, which one you like best yet. I mean, you got to follow your heart. If you already know, <laughs> after listening to an hour of discussion about how awesome crocodilians are, you think you've decided. Um, next time, our our subject group will have significantly fewer legs. Yes, about as few as you can have. About just about as few as you can have, and, and we'll talk about why they are, in fact, the best animals of all time. Uh, we we sure will see. <laughs> um, as usual, uh, we'll put this stuff up on the blog. You know, we'll have a blog post yes. with a. We'll, we'll see if we can get a bunch of pictures and things. Yeah, and we'll have links to uh, a lot of the the news articles and information. I also have a, a link to a a book that really goes over just about everything you can want Crocs in their history wise. That's oh, a cool. fantastic one. All right, I think I think that's about it. I don't think there's anything else to announce. No, I think we're good. So. Thanks for joining us out there. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, once again, we post uh, next episode will come up in a fortnight. Yes, absolutely. So in in a in a bi month. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so two weeks, whatever whatever date that is. One twenty fourth of a year. One. Tw- <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I- I have nothing to add to that. That's perfect. That's exactly. <laughs> we 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 put up new episodes every twenty fourth of a year. All right. This is the part where we ramble into the outro music. All right, guys. See you later. Thanks for listening. Adios. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. For more from us, you can follow us on the Common Descent Podcast Twitter account, Facebook page, or on our WordPress blog, where we post additional cool stuff for each episode. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome. You can find this and other video game remix music at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope to see you next time.